You know, digital is a topic, of course, everyone is discussing these days, especially within community banking. We've seen digital transformation become one of the top priorities and something that came out of the survey as being something that keeps our CEOs up at night. There has been incredible change in mass culture around investing. Accessibility has never been higher. What's top of mind for every client is the incredibly challenging times that we're going through right now. Work is on trial. Every business has had to adapt the way that they work and how they work over the last two years. We know employee experience is something we need to focus on, but where do we even begin? Banking is a risk business, but in today's environment, we are being faced with uncertain times. Financial institutions have always had partners who could help evaluate, address, and mitigate risk, but today they need to lean on those partners more than ever. Welcome to Bank on Whitfleet. Each episode will feature discussions around industry issues, hot topics, and current trends, giving you an insider's look at how top performers and professionals are staying ahead of the curve. All right, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is Elliot Eisenberg, PhD, an internationally acclaimed economist and public speaker, specialized in making economics fun, relevant, and educational. Dr. Eisenberg earned his BA in economics at McGill University in Montreal, and then his master's and PhD at Syracuse University. Dr. Eisenberg is a former senior economist with the National Association of Home Builders in DC, the creator of the Multifamily Stock Index, author of many, many articles, serves on the expert advisory board of the Mortgage Market Guide, and is a regular consultant to several large real estate professional associations, hedge funds, and investment advisory groups. He has spoken to hundreds of business groups and associations as the keynote speaker, including our Whitley Financial Forums. Specifically today, we are talking with Dr. Eisenberg about the economic outlook. We know from our podcast listener feedback that the economy and the possible pending or current recession is weighing heavily on those of us in the financial services industry. So let's jump in. Dr. Eisenberg, thank you so much for being here today. Would you provide our listeners some information about yourself and your background? Wow, there's not much more to say, really. It's pretty pretty comprehensive there. But I've been studying, uh, I've been an economist since I finished college back in the late 80s, and uh, with a focus for a number of years on housing economics. And of course, housing manifest itself in many ways in the economy as housing goes to some extent so goes the economy although that phrase is a little bit over overused but i've been a, a student of the economy almost my entire life and fortunately an e- economists tend to get better with age as you learn <laughs> skills and see recessions and see recoveries you begin to understand things but the data is critically important but there's also ex- use in having experiential uh, experiences, right? That sounds redundant, but you get the idea. So I like to think I can improve it. I always say old bankers never but never die, Dr. Eisenberg. They just get recycled. So nice. Okay, I'll I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> but I I, uh, I love what I do. I study incessantly. I read tons, and hopefully that makes me a little bit more valuable to the world as a result. Excellent. Well, I know from listening to several of your keynote speeches, you're very dynamic and and really dissect things so that people can understand it. So we so appreciate you being here today. 
And maybe we can start with the obvious question is, what should our listeners know about a likely recession, the current recession, are we in a recession, all of those things? Well, let's go, let's go start at the beginning. We're not in a recession. No, Q1 and Q2 of this year were negative GDP, uh, negative 1.6 and 0.6. So they were not trivial, but that's not a recession because everything else was pretty good. Labor, labor growth, employment was good, wage growth was good, consumer spending was fine, CapEx was decent. Just a bunch of one-off things that drove us into, into quote, recession, those two, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And it was a combination of exports were weak and imports were strong, government spending was collapsing, inventories were bad, just weird. I mean, think of, you know, a couple of three basketballs bouncing up and down. Imagine if all three go down at once, that's bad. If all three go up, your economy's booming. These are just accidentally all happen to come down at once. Inventory again, you know, government spending and so on. And in Q2, Q3 and Q4, they kind of went back to normal-ish a little bit. Um, so no, our economy is fine. Our economy is too strong right now. Consumer spending is good. Household consumption is, is powerfully good. We're borrowing money to do it. We're borrowing from the future to do it. We're running down our savings. So that's suggesting that this is not going to persist. But for right now, it's strong. And the Fed, as a result, is going to have to raise rates probably more than they more than they thought six months ago because consumer spending remains strong because the job market remains strong because unemployment is low because wage growth is not half bad those are no sign of recession but the pending likelihood of a recession continues to rise so that's where we should be focused what's going to happen in three months four months eight months that's the big concern now that's exactly why we wanted you here today is to help explain it you know, there's so many sound bites out there right now. On the one hand, we hear people saying, oh, the economy is just fine. Others it saying what's coming down the pipe, pipeline. Right. So I think it is about kind of understanding that. Um, given that our listeners are dramatically affected by interest rates, and you said the Fed's probably going to have to raise either higher or more aggressively than, than proposed or where people thought it was. Can you give some insights on where you see the interest rates headed, um, how long, some of those things? That's a great question. And the Fed, look, the Fed raised rates 75 basis points for four meetings in a row. Those were really big interest rate hikes. We hadn't seen rates that large in decades. We hadn't seen four in a row in decades. This is the most rapid rate hiking cycle since the early 80s when Paul Volcker was chair. And the Fed's going to ratchet down those increases. We're going to ratchet down to 50 basis points, then 25 basis points, and probably somewhere end of Q1 next year, um, we uh, end up with uh, uh, no more rate hiking going on, or very little. But the problem is inflation is persistent, and it's coming down slowly. If we look at the economy, we almost see two different economies going at once. We see the good side of the economy where inflation is weakening quite dramatically. Supply chains are improving. People have bought enough Pelotons. People don't need more stuff. They don't need more Weber grills. So wages in those areas are declining, are going up but much more slowly. And the cost of goods in those areas is going up but much more slowly. Transportation costs are coming down dramatically. So the good sector is doing okay. The problem is it's inflation on the service side of the economy where we see lots of problems. Demand for workers is very strong. It's mostly labor involved in a haircut or making a meal at a restaurant or something. And their wages, uh, wages and inflationary pressures are quite strong. So the Fed's going to have to keep either, either raise rates maybe a little bit longer than I thought, 
or keep rates at their terminal level for longer than they might like. That's the fear. And the markets are really struggling right now with, will both of these things happen? Will just one? I strongly suspect, almost certainly, the Fed raises rates to about five and an eighth at the end of the day, Fed funds. So they, they, we got, you know, we're, we're largely there, but not quite. The question that's really important is how long do they keep these rates at that elevated level, the Fed funds rate? Is it three months, six months, nine months? And that depends totally on the how inflation reduces. Does it fall quickly and deeply? Does it fall shallow and, and uh, slowly? Those are the best scenario, fast and deep. Worst case scenario, shallow and, and slow. And we'll see so many people think inflation will fall quickly and they just, they give all these reasons and that's great, but they've been all wrong for the last year and a half. So no one's got a lot of credibility in this argument. So it's gonna be very data dependent and we'll see the markets keep thinking and hoping that the worst is over and that the Fed's gonna quickly pivot and inflation will be beat and the Fed will lower rates. And that's why every time inflation numbers come out that are positive, the stock market skyrockets. We've had a number of these one-day rallies of two, three percentage points that end up being meaningless. I think that that's premature hoping, and the Fed's not going to release interest rates and bring them down anytime soon. The Fed really needs to see inflation falling strongly before they can say, okay, it's largely slayed, we can begin to lower rates. But that's not going to come for quite some time. And the longer they keep them up, the worse the likely, the more the likelihood of a recession. Sure. Sure, I think that's a good framework uh, for people to understand. It's really the duration of the elevated rates versus necessarily the rate hikes and the correlation to inflation. That's why we're so glad to have you on today so that people understand all the sound bites that we're hearing in the media, Dr. Eisenberg. Let's you talk can, a little bit. Yes, free, call me Elliot, please. Call me Elliot. <laughs> Elliot, sounds good. Um, what are some other factors our listeners should understand about the near-term economy? I know many times I've heard you speak and you really dissect it quite a bit, but uh, can you give some highlights our listeners might want to understand? Sure. On the on the the labor market is the the biggest issue out there right now. The unemployment is very low at 3.7%. It's near its all 50-year all-time low of 3.5, which we hit as recently as two months ago. And we're at just before COVID. That that 3.5 is the lowest since the Vietnam War. We're, we're barely above two tenths of a point, not much. And the number of jobs, open jobs now is about 10 million. The number of unemployed Americans is about 6 million. So there are many, many more jobs than there are Americans out there. That number has to meaningfully fix, get fixed, and go way up, has to reverse before uh, the Fed can begin to, to wave the, 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 the white flag and say, okay, we've won the war unemployment surrendering, the labor market surrendering. Uh, you need, right now, there's almost two jobs per person, 1.7 jobs per person. This is a ridiculously high number. And not as high as it was eight, nine months ago, too, but it's almost as high as it ever has been. We need to get that number substantially up. And the Fed hopes, okay, we'll get that number up to two or two and a half or whatever it is, not higher, and that would be great. But that's not so easy because as the Fed squeezes the economy and raises interest rates, unemployment certainly rises. But the problem is, if you look back into data, going back decades, I mean, I'm talking 60, 70, 80 years here, 
you almost never see unemployment rise a little. It simply doesn't happen. When un once unemployment starts to rise, it moves up because financial conditions weaken, firms can't get money, households become starved for cash, people lose their homes. I mean, you, you, a train of events begin to, to occur and it's almost impossible to stop it. So if you look at the data again, if unemployment rises half a percent or three quarters of a percent, which is what the Fed's now thinking, even 1% in some cases, some Fed members are saying, it'll rise to 2%. It will, that's what happens. The last time it didn't happen was 1956 or 57 or something crazy like that. So my fear is as the rates rise, the unemployment rate rises, the labor market weakens, and that leads to the recession. Not guaranteed, but almost, right? The other thing to pay attention to is household balance sheets. Um, COVID came, we had four savings. Yeah, sure, 20 million Americans lost their jobs, but 135 million didn't. They suddenly had lots of money because they were going nowhere and not going out to eat, not going to restaurants, not going to baseball games. They had lots of cash. So our cash balances bloomed. And we, at the peak about a year and a half ago, uh, had an extra, 2.6 trillion dollars of savings above and beyond the pre-COVID trend growth and savings. We've whittled that down to 1.6 trillion, 1.5 trillion now. Moreover, household savings rates have plummeted to their lowest rate all time with the exception of one month in 2005. So households saying, uh, we're whittling down our savings, we're now no longer saving any money because we want to live our lifestyle and our incomes aren't keeping up with inflation. And let's borrow on the credit card to boot. So credit card balances are rising. So households are maintaining their high level of spending by rating their balance sheet, if you will. This is not a long-term sustainable process. Um, and, and if we go into wages, wage growth is too fast. Wage growth is roughly 5%. Before COVID, it was roughly 3%. We need to get it back to that ballpark if we're gonna aim, the Fed aims for 2% inflation because labor productivity growth is one, one and a half percent. So take, take wage inflation, subtract labor productivity growth, which is to say wages are 3% and labor productivity is 1%, three minus one gets you to two, which is the inflation rate the Fed wants. So we need to see wage inflation fall by almost half, it will get there. But to do it without tipping the economy into a recession is very hard and very unlikely. Similarly, in the same vein, if you look at that number of jobs per available person, uh, right now it was two jobs per person, now it's down to 1.7. As that number declines, like it's doing now, from two to 1.7 and further down, right? Again, that leads to a process that's almost self-fulfilling here. Quit rates have gone from 3% of the labor force a month, an all-time high, down to 2.6, which would have been an all-time high, except for the past year when it was higher. And as that comes down, the last four or five times it's happened, you end up in recession. So it's, it's, you, the Fed raises rates while trying to control the economy, but at some point they lose control. Because things just happen. You lose your job, you lose your house, you stop spending money, too much that happens, firms stop investing in CapEx and you're off to the races, right? So you, you control it until you don't. 
And that's the fear. It's, it, can the Fed maintain control and then lower rates fast enough to rejuvenate the economy and drive things, drive, improve things quick enough while still maintaining control? That's the hope for the soft landing. I'm very skeptical. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful they can do it. But I'm very suspect of them being able to do it based on prior data. Is this where your experience in prior uh, economic cycles comes in that you were talking about, Elliot? Yes. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I know you have a lot of uh, voice within housing and you have a lot of experience, uh, given the fact that many of our listeners might be lenders. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the housing market? Sure. Wow. The housing market is, is certainly going through a period right now. So up until March of this year, housing sales were spectacular because rates were low through the end of December. So you closed on, essentially you, you made the offer on the house and you got your loan and then it didn't close for another month or two. That's why sales were good a couple of months beyond when interest rates began to rise. And now with the rise in interest rates, we have a double whammy going on. We have home prices continuing to rise, albeit no longer much. And in parts of the country, they're already starting to decline on a month over month basis, but not on a year-over-year -year basis. But home prices are high, mortgage rates are high. This double, you can pay, people can afford to pay a high price for the house. They can afford to pay a high mortgage rate, but it's very hard to pay for both. And now we know mortgage payments have increased by 50% in the last 12 months. That puts a lot of people who wanted to buy a house out of the market. So you have a loss in buyer, buyer ability to buy a house has been drastically reduced. Moreover, among buyers, incumbent buyers who have a house, many of them often want to change the house they're in. They want to get their house, a smaller house, change neighborhoods, you know, whatever it is. But they don't want to sell their house because they refied to a very low mortgage over the past two years, between March, April of 2020 and December of 21, that 20-month period. People either bought a house or refied, so they have super low rates. So a combination of unaffordability for first-time buyers, coupled with the lock-in of existing homeowners, and sales activities plummeted to uh, barely above four million, which is near the lowest it's ever been. It's hit the three fives, three point five million annualized rate for a little bit of stretches here and there, but not much. So housing is, is by objective standards, sales activities very weak. Rates are very high. Um, it's not a great time for realtors and home builders and mortgage lenders and title companies and so on. Their job is to sort of withstand the next 12 months, I would say, and somewhere around in the next year, roughly speaking, you know, uh, uh, it, the Fed starts to lower rates, maybe earlier if we're lucky, but they'll start to lower rates and then the economy improves and the recession's still in, but, it, but it'll start to end and housing activity picks up. And then we'll have a housing shortage again. Because so many young people now have moved in with their, with their moms and dads that household formations move. But as we get out of the recession, household formation improves, demand for housing goes up, and there won't be a lot of houses because home builders will stop building houses. So the trauma that the housing industry is experiencing now is short term. We'll go back to the way it was before with not enough housing and big demand and the shortage of housing out there. So this is not a permanent, and moreover, rents are still quite high. They're also starting to come down month over month, but year over year, they're still up considerably. There's still not enough housing out there. We're millions of units short. This will plague us for the next 10 years. 
Yeah, we had another guest, uh, uh, another uh, professor uh, who was talking about the housing market and, and really the lack of affordable housing, lack of inventory oh. over the long term within the United States certainly will move, like you said, beyond the economic cycle. And it'll be interesting to see how demographics shift with people either exiting kind of the multi-generational family or staying in it. So right. I mean, an oh, interesting piece of data here is the median home price, new median home price, this is built by builders, not existing homes, is almost $500,000. That's, I mean, that's just mind-bogglingly high. And yeah. they build almost no entry-level homes. So going back to the, your, the earlier speaker, you know, if we don't build entry-level homes, we have a housing problem because we cannot build enough. We're not building enough multifamily structures to accommodate that lack of single-family entry-level housing. So the housing market goes to a blip, a bad blip now, but it comes out strong at the end and demand returns. Rates fall, you know, home prices don't go anywhere for a year or two, or, or real prices decline because inflation is relatively high, and then we're back in the soup again. I guess Tiny House Nation will continue to be on TV then. <laughs> for sure. It's, it's, it's part of the solution. There are many solutions, but that's one of them. Sure. I think that's that's really good uh, discussion kind of on the housing market to think of it longer term. If we're doing strategy, short term, obviously we need to make some decisions on, on what we're doing if we're in the mortgage business or, or lending uh, or certainly working with builders on the commercial side. Um, if you were going to be working with one of our listeners or, or their firms, what kind of timelines should they be thinking about? What type of maybe milestones would you be having them consider, Elliot? Fair enough. So recession hits in 23. When exactly? Okay, if I knew that, I wouldn't have to work for a living. But if I had to put a stake in the ground, I'd say somewhere in Q2, maybe June. So late Q2, I would say it's going to take us a couple more months to slow down the economy. Unemployment is still super low. Demand for workers is strong. Firms are hoarding workers because they don't believe the recession is coming, which exacerbates the unemployment problems, which keeps wages high. Firms have to become convinced the recession is likely. Firms have to become convinced that they can let their workers go without it costing them. They're not going to have to rehire quickly. That takes a while. And recession, this recession is probably going to be uh, a regular, ordinary recession. Now, it's been a long time since we've had one. But the last recession that I would consider really ordinary was the 1990 recession. That's, that's a long time ago, I get it. The dot-com wasn't quite normal because rates stayed very low. We were in a very low in interest rate inflation environment, which we're not in now. Fed didn't raise rates much back then. 2008, of course, was a terrible recession, the longest since the Great Depression. Abnormally long, not normal. And COVID two months, that's just ridiculous, terrible, but but bizarrely unusual. So you go, go back to 1990 and think that this recession is going to last 12 months. GDP will, will fall a percent, a percent and a half. Not trivial, but nothing painful. Uh, unemployment rises by two percentage points from three and a half to five and a half, and then we're done. And inflation comes down, unemployment rises, inflation comes down, the Fed says we're going to lower rates. As soon as they lower rates, so let's assume the recession starts in July to make the math really easy, which I think is plausible, June, July, whatever. Again, late Q2, maybe early Q3. Lasts a year, so it goes into middle of 24. But around the end of 23, so six months in, halfway into the recession, the Fed says, whoa, the recession's pretty bad here, or bad enough. 
and unemployment's going up and wage inflation's coming down and overall inflation's coming down, CPI inflation, PPE inflation, and PCE inflation, all their measures, we can lower rates. And as soon as they lower rates, the stock market gets excited, the stock market begins to go up, and that's why the stock market precedes the end of the recession by six months and is a harbinger of things. It's not so much that the, the stock market's good at predicting inflation and recessions. They're not, it's not. But it's much better at predicting the end of a recession because they see the rates going down. So by December next year, rates start to come down, housing begins to improve, the stock market goes up, and that tells us that we're in the beginning of the end of the recession. It may last for another four, five, six months, but it's the beginning of the end. That's a great, great timeline to think about. And I think that's what our listeners really oftentimes want from these type of discussions, Elliot, is like, sure. what, is, what is the timeline? Even if we know it's a forecast, we're not going to hold you to it. We're not in right. Vegas, we're not betting. Um, but the year, yeah. the year recession is a, is a good way to think about it. It's, very, it's possible it's less, but again, you, you look at history, you look at what's going on, you look how much the Fed's raising rates, you look at the impact of the lagged effect of the rate hikes, because we haven't felt all these rate hikes yet. Sure, they raised them. The housing markets felt them. But most other sectors are now, now construction's feeling it a little bit. Manufacturing is going to dip into recession. But most of the economy still hasn't felt these, high, these rate hikes of the last six, seven months. So that's why it's 80, 85% likely. But a year is a good time frame to think about. Okay, good. Good. Elliot, anything else you want our listeners to know, a framework, understanding, any other insights before we call this podcast good? The, the, the lags of, of monetary policy that we just touched on, I touched on briefly, are really important. The Fed raises rates, but like most, you take medicine, you take some medicine for a health condition or something, or start taking a new medication. Often the doctor will tell you it's going to take you a week or two before it gets into your bloodstream on a permanent basis and begins to show improvement in whatever condition you've got. Um, the economy is the same way. This is a big the economy, think like a big oil tanker. You're turning it around. It takes a long time. And sometimes the water, the, the waves help move the boat faster or slower. You don't know why the boat's moving. Is it moving because of the interest rates or not? The Fed wants to be sure that they're really having an impact and these impacts are long and variable. So it's, it's a confusing time at best, even for the Fed. And the Fed itself doesn't know what's going on exactly either. Chairman Powell will have a press conference after every, after every Fed meeting and take entertained questions. He doesn't know the answers. The markets are asking him questions and what he thinks matters because it determines policy to a large extent because the chair but he doesn't know the future any better than you do. That's why they made mistakes thinking inflation was transitory last year when it sort of turned out not to be. He's not going to get it right now. He might get it right. He get lucky. But there's no reason to believe that his forecasts are any better today than they were a year ago. We're optimistic that they are, but don't think they are just because of what it, there's no reason to think that's the case. He's learning just as we are every day. Well, two things from that. One is the old adage, don't worry, we're from the government, we're here to help. Uh, the second really uh, brings to mind, uh, we were talking a lot about cryptocurrency in some of our podcasts and really the whole premise or thesis of Bitcoin uh, and should governments really 
lead some of this. So I'm not here to have an opinion either way, but I, I love you bringing that up because it certainly is relevant. We think of all the things that have happened uh, and the premise behind some of these cryptocurrencies too. Right, oh, there's lots to go on crypto. I've got lots of thoughts on that as well. If you want to go there or not, I'm more than happy if you don't. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think we'll have to save that for another session of the podcast. If you have any quick final thoughts of where crypto is going to uh, or how it's going to affect things right now, any thoughts on that, Elliot? A, a, a couple quick ones. Yeah, I mean, we have to differentiate between blockchain and crypto. Blockchain is very cool. And that's a great technology. It'll have all kinds of ramifications down the road. And then we have to think of stable coin. If it's truly stable, like Binance, for example, claims they're becoming increasingly stable and uh, transparent. If they really become transparent and it really is a one-for-one -one trade, you know, that they really have a dollar for every dollar type of thing, okay, that might fulfill a function. But if you're talking about actual coins themselves, I'm very skeptical as to what problem they solve. I don't know how my life is better. I mean, sure, if I want to hack people or involve in money laundering with prostitution or drugs, I can see a really use for it. I'm not convinced that that's a government function, quite frankly. And more importantly, as long as our financial institutions aren't tied to it, like lending against Bitcoin, banks aren't lending against Bitcoin, I don't see how it's damaging to the economy in a big way. I mean, we've lost two or two and a half trillion dollars of, 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 of crypto has declined in value, the market cap of crypto. It hasn't had a noticeable impact on the economy. I'm not sure the government should even regulate this stuff because the reason you want to own it is because it's not regulated and you can do money laundering and so on. Once you regulate, then it's got no purpose of any kind, zero. It's utterly useless. So we have to argue, do we regulate it and kill it? Do we let it survive and let people hack, which is a bad idea also? So I, I am really, I, I think this is just a, 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 a strange, bizarre world of, of, of nothingness, really, but not crypt, not not blockchain or potentially the these stable coins. They may have some function. That one may have function, but blockchain's cool. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think you know, really, the technology and the implications are here to stay. Uh, certainly, something we should understand. I think stablecoin, if it ends up being something like, I'm using air quotes, a money market mutual mm -hmm. fund. Uh, that that certainly is is where it seems to be headed. And those think, should be regulated. Those yeah, absolutely. must be regulated. Absolutely, especially for uh, investor confidence uh, when it really becomes kind of an investment tool. Right. Those are those are great great insights. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure, uh, Elliot, having you on the podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with our listeners. Uh, always an invitation to come back whenever you want to, to be part of the podcast. Sounds great. Thank, Robert, it's been a, a joy and a pleasure being on, and I look forward to next time already. Thank you. Thank you. Today's guest has been Dr. Elliot Eisenberg, the internationally acclaimed economist and public speaker. In today's podcast, we discussed about whether we're in recession, which we aren't necessarily in. We talked that household consumption and other indicators continue to be strong. The Fed is probably going to have to raise interest rates more than anticipated. And in likelihood, if we are thinking of being people that bet, uh, recession may hit in late Q2 of next year, of course, depending on various factors. For the interest rates, big interest rate hikes haven't been seen in decades, as we all know, and the Fed will 
probably ratchet down the increases, but as inflation is persistent, uh, sustaining interest rates over the long term at a higher level than we've maybe seen. Uh, Dr. Eisenberg talked about the two economic factors to consider the goods uh, market and then the services market, each having an impact on those higher interest rates. What are some factors our listeners should think about? Well, the need for workers in the U.S. will continue to place pressure on the economy. Unemployment figures should be watched by leadership. Also looking at household savings and consumer borrowings as maybe forecast data to keep an eye on. And listeners may want to continue to monitor the housing market and uh, where that is trending vis-a-vis interest rates. Finally, I think an excellent point that Dr. Eisenberg brought up is that our listeners should understand the lag effect. That is, the raise in interest rates take time to reverberate throughout the economy. As always, we thank you for listening. Please reach out with any questions or comments. We look forward to having you listen to our next podcast. You've been listening to Bank on Whitfley. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and tune into the next episode as we feature insights from other leaders in the financial industry and even more ways you can stay ahead of the curve.